Well, today we are going to be continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount in the second series of four contrasts that we began last week. And so today, as you see what's highlighted in red, we are in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, where today we're going to see that there's only two kinds of trees, those that bear fruit because they belong to Christ and those that do not bear any fruit because they have some other plan for salvation. Now, today, the main point, however, that Jesus is going to be making is that we as Christians have to engage in judgment regarding prophets and teachers when they claim to be speaking for Christ. We have to judge their fruit. Now, I want you to recall that back in Matthew 7, 1, do you remember back then I mentioned the official verse of the unbelieving world, which is judge not? That's the only verse they know, and it's only a portion of it. They use that portion of the Matthew 7, 1 to deflect any criticism of their sinful ways. But if you continue the rest of the verse, remember I said it's judge not lest you be judged, for in the same manner you judge, it will be judged unto you. So Jesus was not prohibiting all judgment, but in particular, he was forbidding hypocritical judgment. And I mention that today because today you see, indeed, we are called to judge. We will know them by their fruit. That's judgment, and that's what we're going to be doing. Now, I also want, as I began last week in the Old Testament, I want to do so again by showing you the necessity of bearing fruit for the people of God. And so I want to show you this from Isaiah 5 before we get to Matthew. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Now, as you're turning there, what you'll see is a song. And I think the song would have been a little jazzier in the original Hebrew. It probably would have been a little rhyme to it. But the point of the song is I think it was an object lesson that Isaiah had. And I think he really sang this to the people in Jerusalem. And the song is about Isaiah's well-beloved, which is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only true God. And the well-beloved planted a vineyard expecting it to bear fruit, but it did not. And so the idea of the song is the people of Israel would be a little irked by this vineyard at the end of it for not bearing fruit for this magnificent vine dresser. And then Isaiah would pull the rug out from him and say, by the way, you're the vineyard. And you're the ones that didn't bear fruit. So listen to the song. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah said, let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So stop there for just a moment. Who's the well-beloved? That's Yahweh. What's the vineyard? That's Israel. He says, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. So, So notice the care. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So notice the vine dresser, God expected his vineyard to produce good grapes, good fruit, but it literally in the Hebrew, it only produced stink fruit. That's what it produced. It was fruitless. And so one of the things that we see is, yes, there is a necessity for the people of God to bear fruit. One of the reasons why Israel never bore fruit was because of their idolatry. And the reason they had idolatry and a fruitless life by and large, is because they listened to false prophets. The same false prophets that said in Jeremiah 6.14, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so that's why Jesus, again, God, is so concerned about the people of God being led away by false prophets. And so he gives us this warning then today. Matthew 7.15, he said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, the first thing I want to point out here in this text, I'll pull up my pointer. I want you to see that this term, whoops, I hit the wrong button there. The term beware is an imperative. It's a command. So again, Jesus isn't giving a suggestion. It is a command that we ought to be on guard. The term prosecco can be on the lookout for these false prophets. And so throughout the church age, the church is going to be tempted to follow after people who will try to lead it astray. Now, the term false prophets there, it's actually one term in the Greek. It's pseudo-prophetes. The term pseudo, you can hear the idea of fake. If you write under a pseudonym, you're writing under a fake name. 
right? So the pseudo-prophetes is the false prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, God certainly used real prophets, the Navi, who would speak as a personal spokesman for God. And in the New Testament period, God also gave us prophets as an office that were the contemporaries with the apostles of the first century. So I want you to think about how you had men like Mark or Luke. They certainly gave us gospels, and yet they were not apostles. They were under apostolic authority. For example, Mark was attached to Peter. Luke was attached to Paul in a sense. But yet they were not apostles, and they gave us scripture. We also think about Agabus. Agabus was a prophet in the book of Acts. So these men were giving divine revelation and guidance to the church that did not yet have a finished canon. However, after the first century, after the apostles are off the scene, you no longer have prophets either. And I'll be proving that to you in the application from Ephesians 2.20. Now, the problem is you're going to still in our day in the church have people who are claiming to be prophets. And I mention that because this is still apropos because, yes, indeed, false prophets will still arise. So think of it this way. When it comes to teachers, we have those today. Those are teachers who proclaim and explain existing revelation. But when it comes to the prophet, yes, they may proclaim and explain, but they also give us new revelation. And so my point that I'm driving at here, of course, is even though there's technically no prophets today, in the true sense of a prophet, there will be people who claim to be so. And so the words of Christ are very apropos for being on guard against not just prophets, but also teachers or anyone else who may claim to speak for Christ, and yet at the end they're trying to lead us astray. Now notice how Jesus describes these false prophets. He says they are the ones who come to you in sheep's clothing. Notice that phrase, who come to you. Some scholars claim that that means they always come from the outside, or that's what's intended here by Jesus. But I want you to realize that the false prophet or the false teacher can come from either the outside or even the inside of the church. In fact, turn to a passage that shows this. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. In fact, Bob was handling this text today, uh, just a couple, uh, one verse earlier, verse 28, in our Sunday school. So turn to Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. Please turn your Bibles there. Now here we have the Apostle Paul, who is addressing the Ephesian elders, and listen to what he warns them of. He says in verse 29 of Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now stop there. That certainly indicates that these wolves are going to come from the outside. But notice in verse 30, he says, And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. So notice that's from the inside. So the issue isn't whether the false prophet or the false teacher comes from the outside or the inside. The issue is that they're really wolves pretending to be sheep. And so when Jesus says they come to you in sheep's clothing, there's some irony there, isn't it? Because there you have a reference in the idea of sheep to the church. Jesus calls his sheep by name. He lays his life down for the sheep. He is the great high shepherd of the sheep. In Matthew 25, you're either part of the sheep, you're saved, or you're part of the goats, you're lost. And so the irony is these people, these false prophets or false teachers, will claim to be one of the sheep, but what are they in reality? Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And so the idea Jesus is conveying is that the true flock of God has to constantly be on guard against those who claim to be one of the sheep, but in reality they want to lead us astray off the narrow path of salvation and onto the wide one that leads to destruction. That's the goal of the wolf, pillage the flock. Now, that's why Jesus gives us a remedy in discerning how to determine a valid versus invalid teacher or prophet. Notice he says in Matthew seven sixteen through 17, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? For every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. 
Now, dear ones, notice he says you will know them by their fruits. How do we understand fruit? Well, the way I'm defining it here, and I think it's biblical, is that fruit represents the doctrine and the deed of either the prophet or the teacher or whoever's claiming to speak for Christ. It is both their doctrine and their deed. Remember, doctrine is always primary. Why? Because you act indeed on what you truly believe. Now, let me build a case through Matthew that indeed fruit should be seen in this way. So begin by turning your Bibles to Matthew 3.8. And what I'm going to do is take you through some texts that show you how fruit is used in Matthew. So turn to Matthew 3.8. And as you're turning there, remember, this is John the Baptist who is preaching. He's baptizing. And lo and behold, you have Sadducees and Pharisees that come for baptism. And if you remember what John the Baptist says to them, it's not exactly the seeker-sensitive message he gives them. He tells them, hey, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And listen to what he says right after that in verse 8. He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what was the primary problem with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? It was a doctrinal one, that they had missed messianic salvation by faith, that they had tried to, as Paul says in Romans, establish their own righteousness through works. That was their issue. In fact, in the very next verse, notice in verse, th- verse 9 of Matthew 3, notice he says, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Why were the Sadducees and Pharisees boasting in being children of Abraham? Because they thought it was genetic rather than by faith. And so the first issue that they had was a doctrinal one. But the reason they did the deeds that they did was because their doctrine was bad. So again, you see that their fruit and the necessity to bear fruit was first a doctrinal one. Now, don't turn to this, but if you're a note taker, jot down John 6, 29. It's just a cross-reference because there, remember the Jews asked Jesus, what must we do that we would do the work of God? What does Jesus say to them? This is that what you do to do the work of God. He says, believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Is it an interesting that the gospel is sometimes portrayed as something that must be obeyed? You see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where God is going to pour retribution upon those who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the first work you ought to do if you're ever going to be pleasing to God? It's coming to faith in Christ. That's the idea. And of course, it's all a gift given to us by God himself. And so that again reinforces doctrine comes first. Then deed. Now turn your Bibles ahead to Matthew 13, verses 22 through 23. Matthew 13, verses 22 through 23. Here you have the parable of the soils. The soils, of course, represent different people who are exposed to the seed, which is the Word of God. And here Jesus is explaining the parable. Matthew 13, 22 through 23. Please turn there. Now, as you turn there, my point in showing you this is to show the relationship between coming to saving faith and bearing fruit. If you don't have saving faith, you can't bear fruit. If you come to saving faith, you're going to, by necessity, bear fruit. Notice verse 22 of Matthew 13. Jesus says, And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So notice a lack of belief, or as you look on the screen, a lack of doctrine is being unfruitful. Now notice in verse 23, he says, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and who indeed what bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Notice the bearing of fruit is why? Because he believed. It's first doctrine, which leads to deeds. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to get a workout. And in one more passage, turn ahead to Matthew 21.19. I'll conclude with this one. Matthew 21.19. Here is that famous fig tree that Jesus comes to along the road. And remember, the fig tree is a symbol often of Israel. But in the, in the time that Jesus sees this lone fig tree on the side of the road... It was the springtime. 
And in the springtime, the fig tree should not only be bearing its plumage, its, its foliage, the leaves, but also fruit. Well, he comes up to it and it has the foliage, but it doesn't have the fruit. And it's a lot like Israel. They, should, they had the prophets. They had the word of God. They had the promises, the covenants, the patriarchs. They had everything going for them, but they wouldn't come to Messiah by faith. They didn't have fruit. So it's a symbol. Notice he says, seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. Again, it's a tease. It should have fruit, and it doesn't. He said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Dear ones, we read in Isaiah chapter 5 that Israel was designed by God to bear fruit. But because they listened to the false prophets who were saying peace, peace when there was no peace, they went into idolatry. They never bore fruit. That's the idea. And so now that's the risk again for Jesus' people. And so that's why he says you'll know them by their fruit. You will know if someone is telling you the truth by their doctrine and deed. If their doctrine and deed doesn't line up with this, they're a $3 bill. That's what he's claiming. Now, notice he adds on to this. He expands upon the fruit inspection. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Isn't it interesting that Jesus alludes to grapes? The grape was the fruit for the Israelite. It led to the fruit of the vine. And it's ironic that that's exactly what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 5. God intended them to bear grapes, but they bore stink fruit. Isn't it interesting, if you look at grapes, they don't come from a thorn bush nor figs from a thistle. That's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, of course, they don't come from that. Now, if you look for buckthorn and you look at it at a distance, Remember, it has those disgusting little berries on it. It's kind of like the stink fruit alluded to in Isaiah 5. But upon close inspection, it's very easy to tell that those little disgusting berries aren't grapes. And in the same way, someone may appear to be speaking for Christ or living a life after Christ, but upon close inspection of their fruit, it can be seen that they really do not. That's the inspection that Jesus is calling us to, the inspection of doctrine and deed. And so that's why he says in verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. What's very interesting is here we are called to be fruit inspectors, not heart detectors. Now, what do I mean by that and what's the difference? Well, think about the heart for the Hebrew The heart was the center of the thought life. And by the way, we use it the same way. We use the heart as a metaphor. We'll say, hey, that one football team, they played with a lot of heart. We don't think, well, they use their organ in their their chest that pumps blood. No, we're using it in a metaphorical way. In the same way, the Israelites knew that the heart pumped blood and that your brain was in here, but the heart was used as the center of the thought life. It had to do with the will, the intellect, and the emotions. And so the idea is that you and I cannot always know the motives of someone's heart. We're not called to detect that. In fact, we can't know those things oftentimes. Bob was talking about that today in Sunday school. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The very next verse says God alone can. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, that we ought to not make judgment before the time because when God returns, that is Christ, he is the one who knows the motives of the heart. So let's get the category straight. We are not to be those who say, you know, I don't think that guy's got pure motives or that gal or what have you. We don't always know that. But the kind of judgment that you and I can engage in is I can say, hey, I'm going to take what that man is teaching and I'm going to see, does it line up with the Scripture? That's not a false judgment. That is a valid judgment, the very judgment that Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the church, is calling us to. Not judging the heart or the motives, but judging does the doctrine and do their deeds line up with what they are called to in Scripture. That's how we're judging our teachers, our pastors, elders, and again, those who would claim to be prophets. I will make the claim later. We don't have any modern-day prophets, but Nonetheless, someone who claims to speak for God. 
That's the idea. So as we continue then, Jesus concludes by focusing on the fact that there are only two trees, the good and the bad. Notice he says, verses 18 through 20, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Notice the claim Jesus makes. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Why? The elect, those who are chosen in Christ, who are brought to faith, they will bear fruit. They will. Not because they're great people, but because by God's power, he will sanctify them. He will transform them into his image. Now, the same is true of the unbeliever. They will not produce good fruit, which begins with trust in Christ. They will not produce that. And so at some point, someone may claim to belong to Christ, but the point is if they really do not, at some point in their lives, their fruit, either in their doctrine or deed, will show them to be a bad tree. A great passage that illustrates this is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, turn your Bibles there. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's read verses 18 through 22. Verses 18 through 22. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now, as you're turning there, Peter was dealing with false teachers. And these false teachers in Asia Minor, they were claiming Jesus Christ is not coming back. Therefore, if he's not coming back, after all, they argue, the apostles had the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament. And since Christ is not returning to judge, you can live any way you want in sexual promiscuity here and now. That was their argument. So notice the kind of fruit they end up bearing. Verse 18, it says, these, this is regarding the false teachers. Peter says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires by sensuality, that would be sexual promiscuity and immorality. Remember, uh, sexual intercourse is godly, provided it's between one man, one woman within the confines of marriage. So he's talking about people who are teaching you can break that. They're boundary breakers. They also break the bounds of usurping the realm of the angels by bossing angels around. So they're boundary breakers. They break the bounds that God put on people. Notice he says, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. For if after that he has escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse from them, for them than the first. Now stop there. Some have concluded that this means a Christian can lose their salvation. It does not, because notice what happens in verse 22. Verse 21, it says, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Now here's the key, verse 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. Now here's from Proverbs 26, 11. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Now what's the point of that proverb? Well, the point of the proverb is these people may have looked like they were Christians. They may have appeared to be Christians, but at some point in their life, in their doctrine and their deed, they showed themselves to be truly who they were. Now, remember, to the Hebrew, the dog was not the petty little cocker spaniel that we've got. They were considered unclean. Same with the pig. And so the idea is the uncleanness of this person is demonstrated why because a dog goes back and does what a dog does. They showed themselves not to be the Christian that they claimed to be. They showed themselves to be the dog and the pig that they truly were in their doctrine and in their deed. That is the idea of the bad tree. The bad tree will end up showing its bad fruit at some point. And that's how we ought to know them those who do not speak for Christ will be known by their doctrine and their deed. Now, what happens to the bad tree? Well, in verse 19, notice Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown where? 
into the lake of fire. They are those who are on that broad path of destruction that leads to eternal damnation that we talked about last week. And again, that's where they are heading when they don't bear fruit. And so now in verse 20, Jesus comes up to with an inference. He says, so then you will know them by their fruits. That's how you're going to know whether someone is speaking for Christ or not. You will know them by their doctrine or their deed. Very interestingly, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, that is the people of Israel, they had a test for the validity of the prophet as well. They had to test the fruit of the prophet. It was spelled out, for example, in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, where God said that if a man rose up and he claimed to speak for God, and in fact, he even predicted a future event, and it came about, but he taught a different doctrine that led people away from Yahweh, he was not to be listened to, that dreamer. So there was a doctrinal test. If they didn't bear good fruit the prophet was not to be listened to. There was a second test, and that was in Deuteronomy 18.20. And that was if some prophet arose in Israel and he claimed to know the future, and yet what he claimed to happen or was going to happen, and in fact it did not happen, he was to be rejected as well. If they predict the future and it doesn't come about, they're a false prophet. By the way, how many men who've made predictions in our day and age who claim to be prophets would have to step down over that. Yet it doesn't seem to hold water anymore for people to take that same test, at least in their eyes. Dear ones, you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the flock, as the sheep, are called to be fruit inspectors, lest we get pillaged by the wolves. Again, we're not heart detectors. I can't always know the motives of a person's heart. I can't know why they do what they do but I can judge their doctrine and their deeds in light of what the Scriptures say. And that is the calling that Christ is giving us here today. Now, with that, let's come to some applications that I think flow from this text. Number one, we must know there are no modern prophets, but we must judge teachers by their fruit as well. My point here is I don't want you to think, well, Jesus says, we have to be on guard against false prophets. Well, we don't really have any prophets today. Therefore, this isn't apropos. It still is. We have to judge people who claim to speak for God by the same standard Christ laid out. Number two, we must judge the doctrines and the deeds by others of others to determine their validity. And again, we have to do it with the Scriptures. Number three, the confession of the true Christ is always the test of orthodoxy the person and work of Christ. Who he is, what he has done, is the core of the gospel. And so we'll talk a little bit about the essential doctrines that we must all hold to, without which no one can call themselves a follower of Christ, and those things that are non-essential that we can differ on and still call one another brother and sister. Well, let's begin with number one. I want to begin our applications by showing you that there are no modern-day prophets and then show you that we must apply this still, though, to those who claim to be prophet, even though they're not, or teachers or anyone else who claims to speak for Christ. Let me build the case by showing that, that there's no prophets through Ephesians 2.20. In Ephesians 2.20 here, Paul's talking about the one new man, the church. And he's talking about, he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the first thing I want to point out in red is notice the phrase apostles and prophets. I had a very good question from someone last week. They said, well, are the prophets that Paul has in mind here, are they Old Testament prophets? And I don't think so. Let me explain why. Here, word order, I think, does matter. If Paul had intended Old Testament prophets, I think he would have had prophets followed by apostles. And what's more, when you come to Ephesians 4.11, jot that down, Ephesians 4.11, remember that's where Christ ascended on high. He gave gifts to men. And who did he give? He gave men. And it begins, he says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. And so the apostles and prophets that are being referred to here, again, would be 
apostles and prophets under the new covenant. Again, prophets would be men like Luke or Mark who give a scripture or Agabus who predicted events in the future. But what I'm claiming is that once this foundation has been laid, including the apostles and prophets, you no longer have another foundation. In other words, notice it's the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus is depicted as that cornerstone that holds the foundation together. So just as you don't have multiple foundations, you don't have multiple Christ, you don't have multiple apostles and multiple prophets. That has been given to us. And the rest of the church is being built upon it. And so that's why, for example, in Jude 3, we have to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. If you were constantly being given new apostles and prophets, well, then you would constantly be having new revelation. And that's what happens in Mormonism. Mormonism have their apostles. In Catholicism, that's why they don't go with Scripture alone, why they have their magisterium. They have their pope who stands in the very vicar of Christ, the seat of Christ, they claim, who speaks as an apostle of Christ. But, dear ones, they're a $3 bill. Why? That foundation has once and for all been laid. Now, what about Matthew 24, 11, where later Jesus will warn, he'll say this, he'll say, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Well, notice Jesus does not say many true prophets and false prophets will arise. He says many false prophets will in the future 70th week of Daniel. Dear ones, there are no modern-day prophets. In fact, if someone is claiming to be one who gives new revelation, by definition, that is not lining up with the Scriptures. That is false teaching. Now, what I want to show you is that I think there's a shift even in the epistles from, excuse me, from prophets to teachers. And I'm going to show you this from 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, remember 2 Peter, Peter's dealing with these false teachers who were claiming that the apostles had the wrong interpretation of Scripture, that Christ wasn't coming back. So listen to what he warns the people in Asia Minor. 2 Peter 2.1, he says, But false prophets also arose, arose among the people. Now stop there. What does he mean that false prophets also arose among the people? I think he's talking about the people of the Old Covenant. But notice right after that he says, Just as there will also be false apostles or prophets among you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Stop there. Notice he makes the shift. Yeah, there was a problem with prophets. Now your issue is with teachers. And by the way, this is one of the indications that the issue that Peter had was not over the origination of Scripture, but its interpretation. That was the issue. He wasn't dealing with prophets. He was dealing with false teachers. The teacher said, the apostles got it wrong. So how did Peter counteract it? He said, well, we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we heard God authenticate our interpretation. So yes, we got the interpretation right. So notice he goes on to say, what will these false teachers do, just like false prophets? He says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring swift destruction upon themselves. Dear ones, my point here is that whether you're dealing with people who claim to be prophets or you're dealing with teachers, they all have to be judged the same way by their fruit in both doctrine and in deed. Now, let's begin with doctrine. The church is commanded by Christ to judge the doctrine of teachers and those who claim to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to show you that we see this all over the place, not just from Christ in the... Uh, Gospels, but also in the epistles. Here we have the Apostle Paul telling this to Timothy. Timothy functioned as an elder or pastor at the church of Ephesus. Notice Paul said to him, he says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that, what was the purpose? So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Notice the term strange doctrines. The term there comes from hetero didaskaleo. The hetero, of course, you hear the idea of heterosexual. Heterosexual means you have the attraction, rightly, of the other sex. Again, God's plan, one man, one woman, the confines of marriage. So heterosexual is good, but not hetero 
or other doctrine. It would mean it's doctrine other than what was given to us by Christ and the apostles. Now, this means then, this is very much in keeping with what we learn today by Christ. You will know them by their fruit. What is the primary issue with the fruit? It's their doctrine. And their deeds always follow. All right, now let me show you another example. Again, a pastoral epistle. Titus was a pastor as well. He was a pastor on the island of Crete. And notice he's commanded by Paul. He said, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. One of the ways in which the church can protect itself is that the pastor can reject, literally, the factious man as the hereticos, the heretic, after a first and second warning. Now, the term for heretic meant originally to divide and to separate, but it became almost a technical expression for heresy. That's where we get our term. Someone's a heretic because they teach another doctrine. But I want you to realize that the factious man can divide brothers and sisters, yes, through their doctrine, or also how they act. And again, it's a very apropos term for fruit, both doctrine and deed. So what I want you to see here is, yes, doctrine must be judged, not motives, but doctrine in light of Scripture. Now, in the next slide, I'm going to show you that we have to judge deeds, but I want to give you an analogy from Scripture to show you the relationship between doctrine and deed. Do you know during the Reformation, Martin Luther criticized the book of James? In fact, he called it an epistle of straw at one point. I don't know if he ever repented of that. I'm not an expert on Luther. But what Luther was angry about is he thought that James, in his chapter 2, where he talks about works, was contradicting Paul's justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 4. But let me try to put Romans 4 and James 2 together so that you can see the relationship between doctrine and deed, faith and works. In Romans chapter 4, Paul shows that salvation has always been by faith alone. And he cites Genesis 15, 6. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. James is not contradicting that. What James is doing is qualifying what kind of faith saved. And so ironically, let me read this to you, James 2.21. James is appealing not to Genesis 15, but Genesis 22, where Abraham acted on the faith that he had, so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. In fact, he believed that he would even be raised from the dead, according to Hebrews 11.19. And so the idea is, if he's not willing to sacrifice his son, he doesn't really believe. He doesn't really believe the promises that they're going to come from the seed. So listen to what it says in James 2.21. James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? James' point is that his deeds were necessary if he really believed. You always act on what you really believe. That's the relationship in the fruit, the doctrine and the deed. There's no contradiction Paul emphasizing Genesis 15, James emphasizing Genesis 22, but it's both doctrine and deed, and they go together. So we are called in judging fruit, not just the doctrine, but the deed as well. Notice here, oh, in fact, before I put this up, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jude 3. Please turn to Jude 3. And in Jude 3, remember, that's one Bible book before the book of Revelation, and there's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude 3 is Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Please turn your Bibles there. What I'm going to show you in Jude 3 and 4 is a relationship again between doctrine and deed. Remember, Jude is dealing with the same false teachers by and large that Peter was. Men who were reviling angelic majesties. They're bossing angels around. That's boundary crossing. Do we have the authority to boss angels around? No. Do they have the authority to have sexual promiscuity outside of one man and one woman in the confines of marriage, no boundary crossing. Why are they boundary crossers in their doctrine, excuse me, in their deeds because of their doctrine? Okay, so notice Jude 3. Jude says to the church, he says, Beloved, it's for all believers, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, 
I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. What's the command for the church? That we would contend for the doctrine once and for all handed down to the saints. By the way, you can't have a once and for all handed down to the saints faith if you have modern apostles and prophets who are constantly giving new revelation. It would be morphing. It would be changing. So again, that's great evidence that, no, we have a, an established apostle and prophet group that are no longer with us. But notice that's the doctrinal issue, but it leads to the deeds. Notice verse 4. Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons. Now what do they do? Who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 3, contend for the doctrine once and for all handed down to the saints. Why? Look at these men's deeds. They have licentiousness. The term there, aselgia, in Lonida, it's one of the uh, word studies that I often use when I'm studying passages. It defines what licentiousness means, the aselgia. And it literally says it is behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. That's an excellent, excellent description. Notice they're the ones who turn the grace of God into the complete lack of moral restraint. Their wayward doctrine leads to the wayward deed. Dear ones, you and I were called today to be fruit inspectors. Again, not heart detectors, fruit inspectors. And therefore, we are to judge the doctrine and the deed of anyone who claims to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this leads me to my last point, and that is if we judge others' doctrine, where do we draw the line and label someone a false teacher? When is the time to break fellowship with a person who claims to speak for Christ? Do we do it over any doctrine that we disagree on? Well, a couple of caveats I want to mention. First of all, all teaching that does not line up with Scripture is a form of false teaching. And sadly, because all teachers and pastors, including myself, are not omniscient, we're going to make error. But therefore, we don't divide over every discrepancy. We have to draw the line. So where do we say, hey, you know what, that is so not in keeping with the Scriptures, it deviates so much that I can no longer be in company with such and such a teacher or person. Well, if you look on the screen, what I think the essentials are have to do with the gospel that is the person and work of Christ. But there's a lot of ways to distort that. Think about the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus. How much doctrine did he really know? Well, he knew Christ. He knew him. And that day he was with him in paradise. Think about the Apostle Paul, who in Galatians 1, 8 through 9 says, If anyone would preach a different gospel than the one I preached, let him be anathema. Literally cursed of hell. Even if an angel from heaven would come and preach a different gospel... Then the one that Paul taught, he says, let him be an anathema, cursed of hell. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. What good news? The good news that the Vikings may have a good season next year? No. Nope. The good news that the tax rate may come down someday or whatever? No. The good news, of course, is about the person and work of Christ, who he is, what he's done. And so if you distort that, we have no longer anything in common as far as our salvation. We have to part ways. And so it's over the essential. Think about a good rule of thumb would be the five solas of the Reformation. Because if you attack any of the five solas, you are attacking the core of the gospel. That's why we differ from the Catholic Church. It's over, ultimately, sola scriptura. So think about it. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by God's grace alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. What does the Roman Catholic Church fundamentally attack? Well, it attacks all of them. But fundamentally, it says, no, it's not Scripture alone. We have a magisterium. We have a modern-day apostle. After all, he's the Pope. And if your Bible doesn't line up with what he says, you're an anathema. They did that at the Council of Trent. That's an attack not on Scripture, on Scripture alone. It's the alones that send people into heresy. It's the attack on Christ alone. 
They have a different Christ. If your Christ can't give atonement and save to the utmost, then you have a different Jesus. If I have to add works to what your Jesus did in order for me to be saved, then you have a different Jesus than the Bible because the Jesus in the Bible saves once and for all. Are you with me? If anyone were to say, well, Jesus, as a Mormon does, he's the spirit brother to Lucifer. No, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus isn't God. Well, no, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. He is God. And so there, I'm going to have to part ways. That's the idea. Now, what about the non-essentials? These are areas where we can have disagreements, and it doesn't mean everyone's right. There's only one right answer. You only have one correct interpretation of any given passage. Multiple implications and applications logically connected to the meaning of the text, but there's one meaning. So, for example, in eschatology, someone is right and someone is wrong. But we don't have to divide over the timing of the rapture. Post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, pre-wrath. We don't have to divide. I think there's a right answer, but we don't have to divide over that. These would be areas in the non-essential arena where we can call each other brothers and sisters and say, hey, we're wrestling with the data and we can disagree on that. Now, as I say that, that does not deny the perspicuity of Scripture. Just because people are wrong on what it says doesn't mean it's not clear. It's our thinking that's not clear, not the Scriptures. But let's go to the area. I should have had three circles on here. My diagram's a little lacking. Well, let's go outside of the essentials and non-essentials to those things that have not been revealed. So when we're talking about essentials and non-essentials, I'm talking about at least that which has been revealed. But outside of that, you have the non-revealed. Things like, what should the color of the carpet be? Did God say anywhere? Was there 1 Timothy chapter 7? The color of the carpet must be, no, it doesn't say anything. So you're free. And you don't have to divide over that. Um, how many times a week should we meet? doesn't say. Now, we can't forsake the assembling together. Some are prone to do as it says in Hebrews. But we don't have to meet even on a certain day. There's freedom. Okay, so those are the areas we can't divide over as well. Let me leave you on this slide with the, before I get to the last slide, the words of Augustine. Augustine famously said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think that's well said. We have to keep the main things the main things, and we may have to part ways with people who compromise the gospel. But we don't have to divide over all things. And sadly, I've seen people over the years as being a pastor myself, they will divide over the smallest of things. You don't agree with them over some minute detail in the way your church functions that's not revealed in Scripture. They'll, they'll pack, pack it in in part ways. We ought not to be that kind of people. We ought to be devoted to one another in brotherly love in Romans 12. And you can't do that if you keep church shopping anytime you don't like something. No, we only divide over that which is gospel. Okay, now let me come to the test of orthodoxy that we see in 1 John. Remember I said, if anyone has a different Christ, they're to be an anathema. And we see this from John, 1 John 4, 1 through 2. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why was it important that John argued that it was Christ in the flesh? Because the heretics that John was facing, I think, were docetists, at least in this instance. What's a docetist? Well, the term docetism comes from the verb dokeo, which means to seem. And the heresy was that Jesus seemed to be human, but he was only God. Now, you and I are quick to say, and rightly so, Jesus was fully God. He's truly God. That's absolutely correct. But he's also truly man. Jesus must be truly God to save us, but he has to be truly man to represent us. If he's not truly a man, he's not a representative that can bear my sin. And so it was an attack on what? The person of Christ. Now, I want you to think about today we may not have docetists, maybe we do, I don't know. But I want you to think about how, in some sense, this could also be a test for the second coming of Christ. I've been dealing with a lot of eschatology lately. I work on my knee and I watch videos on eschatology debates. And I was just seeing if anyone had a good reading on the Olivet Discourse. And 
just been watching. And, well, one thing I came across are people who are preterist. Now, to be fair, they were full preterist. What is a preterist? A preterist is someone who believes that the second coming of Christ happened spiritually, a full preterist, and it all happened in 70 A.D. What's very interesting is, in some sense, Christ come in the flesh is a test for the second coming as well. Because forevermore, Jesus is the God-man. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with the shout of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. It's an adjectival intensive, meaning it's the Lord himself. It's not a surrogate. Jesus isn't sending an angel in his place. He's not sending some stunt double to do it. He himself is bodily descending to take his church home. In Acts 1.11, when Jesus ascends bodily, the angels say, Men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus coming back in like manner. He's coming back bodily. And so if you take what's happening bodily, that is Christ the God-man, and you say, well, it's just spiritual, it's heresy. So in some sense, Christ coming in the flesh could be seen not just as a test at his first advent, but at a second as well. Brothers and sisters, we must be those who test the spirits that are speaking through the teachers and those who claim to be prophets. And again, we're not judging as heart detectors their motives. The great high calling that we have from Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, is to be fruit inspectors. Fruit inspectors who judge doctrine and deed so that you and I will remain on that narrow path, the one that heads to glory rather than the wide path going to destruction. That's our high calling from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us clarity as to how we may know you through faith alone and Christ alone and how we may live according to your precepts through your laws that you've given us through your apostles and through the, the scriptures, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all these great things that you've given us in salvation in Christ. Heavenly Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who persevere, that we would not be turned aside from the narrow path onto the wide one by some wolf who claims to be of the sheep. I also pray, Heavenly Father, for friends and relatives who may be living in deception, following one of the ravenous wolves. We pray, Heavenly Father, you give us opportunity to share the truth of the gospel and to clarify what the gospel is and what it is not. We pray that you would open hearts before us, allow our evangelism to be fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.